guys, Jim Cox, and I'm here today with an interview with uh, JT Cosman. Uh, JT is an expert in AI. We've talked to him a number of times, but um, clearly in the age of COVID, uh, AI has taken on special meaning mm -hmm. as companies have uh, had to rework their work environment. So JT, thanks for taking the time to chat today. Oh, always a pleasure to be here. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about your background, uh, where you come from, and what do you do? Oh, boy, how long do we have? Oh, we have a good bit. <laughs> there we go. Well, uh, I, have, uh, I know most of the people who are working in AI now have an unusual background, and I tend to win the bar bet. Uh, I started out uh, in working with computers a very, very, very long time ago. Truly, I learned to code on an IBM 1620 with Hollerith punch cards back in the 1970s. And I've been playing around at least with computers since the 60s. And always kept a hand in, uh, started out as a hacker. And I, like everyone else in my generation, all the kids in my generation, right? And uh, uh, played around and did some work in that arena, went to work. My very first job actually was as a computer. Uh, that was my job title. That was in the days before a computer wasn't a machine, it was a person, mm. or it was both. And uh, was doing that, enjoyed the work on the computers, but uh, by then I was you know, 19 years old, needed to do something adventurous. And so I took a bit of a detour path and I spent a career as a paramedic, then a police officer, uh, a deep sea rescue diver. And eventually I joined the US Army where I was part of the US Army Special Forces. I led a, I was team leader of a scout sniper recon team with, uh, with the Army Special Forces for a, couple, for a while. Got uh, injured quite a bit, came back to the civilian sector, and that's when I got my degrees. I got, uh, well, did a PhD in psychology and realized the, the data wasn't there and I wasn't there to, excuse me, the mathematics wasn't there to be able to analyze the data I was looking for, so I worked toward a second PhD in parallel in mathematics and uh, did my work in that and my postdoc and all that work in those areas for a couple of years. Left uh, the university, went to Gallup, the Gallup organization, where I did a lot of work on human capital and, and looking at everything from selection to engagement and all those sorts of solutions. And that's where I was, fat, dumb, and happy uh, when uh, we had 9-11, and so I got a call one sunny Sunday afternoon from a guy who introduced himself as James Clapper, who was about to be appointed the Director of National Intelligence. And he told me, well, uh, looks like looking at your record here, you, you're a geek and a shrink, and you know we had some challenges. We had all the data we needed, and we didn't have access to it. We weren't sharing that data effectively, and we need systems to be able to do that and occasion those outcomes. And so I went back to the Beltway and uh, I went into work for the Director of National Intelligence and worked with the US intelligence, defense and security agencies for about a decade building capabilities to make sure we didn't have any 9-11 like incidents. Uh, when I left the Beltway, I went back into the private sector and ended up as chief data scientist for Samsung, and then eventually chief data officer and a member of the executive committee for Time Inc. Uh, after I left Time Inc, when they were bought by Meredith, 
I uh, just sat on a couple of boards, did some work in private equity venture capital, and frankly, I got bored sitting on boards. And uh, an old friend from the past, who's former Secret Service, ran uh, the nuclear, biological, and chemical response team out of the White House for a decade, called me up and said, "How'd you like to use AI to protect and to protect the, what we've always done, to protect people, property, places, and profits?" And that's what we do. Uh, I am now the CEO of a company, and he's the president of the company, protected by AI. And our tagline is peace of mind through superior technology. And that's what we do. We bring this, these uh, technological capabilities that aren't otherwise available to small and mid-cap companies. We uh, deliver them in a way that makes them affordable, accessible, usable. And basically, we build, well, on the one hand, uh, he says we build machines that print money, which is true. Uh, we work with organizations to be able to leverage that technology to their advantage and also use that technology to protect themselves, uh, whether that's cybersecurity, physical security, uh, gaining insight into market threats or competitive threats, uh, and being able to increase their operational efficiencies and capabilities. So. I guess wow. that uh, sums it up. What, what's interesting is you and I have done probably four or five conversations. I mean, you're, you've been on my show more than any other person. And <laughs> I, did not know the, uh, I did not know the part about 9-11 uh, or your work in terms of national security. Um, yeah. from, I don't remember that at all from our well, previous we, conversations. As you can imagine, we don't talk about it a lot. And uh, yeah. some of it is be declassified since uh, over the time that we've spoken to one another. And uh, I, I won't get into any of the particulars that have me no, sharing no, a it, with Ed I, Snowden, but... Uh. <laughs> no, but it, it, it brings up uh, just, uh, it changes the conversation in my mind in a couple of couple of respects, and and we can talk about those. But, um, you know, your, your background is obviously extensive. And, and before you got into your current um, current company, I know we talked a good deal about how AI affects business and the you know, the prospects for businesses growing their business um, through AI in, in the world to come and how that's gonna change things, especially in terms of labor. Um, you know, with COVID, have you seen changes in terms of how AI has been adopted by corporations? Oh, absolutely. I think we're, COVID has become, uh, and I, I've been giving a, a talk on this that I've titled COVID, COVID as a catalyst for positive change. Mm. And I think what COVID really did was it brought into stark relief a lot of the challenges that we have, that have been encroaching on business over the last many years. Uh, and, and that's problems with um, candidly getting flabby, right? Mm -hmm. Getting a little bit complacent, uh, being comfortable in the situation and position we're in, it reminds me very much of the world pre the mid late 1990s, where companies were all of a sudden shocked, shocked, I say, by this thing called the internet, right? And how we could reach a bigger customer base and how uh, those customers that were realizing had bigger, uh, had greater insights, they had more choice among themselves. We, we changed the paradigm, we changed the world. Mm -hmm. And I think COVID is 
doing a lot of that same thing. I think it's causing us to have to look back on ourselves and reflect on the practices that we have in our organizations, uh, particularly with things like virtualization, with things like uh, even headcount, and how are we using and how are we leveraging the human capital in our organization? And are we doing that optimally effectively? And we're seeing that the, the stark difference between the companies that survive and even thrive through this COVID crisis come down, I'm finding, to them attending to four things. Basically, they're really uh, focusing in the right way on their strategy, on their human capital, on their insights, and on the technology they're using. And when they do those things in combination in the right ways, uh, it makes 100% of the difference. And that isn't something that we're just talking to the fortunate few in the Fortune 50. We're talking about mom and pop shops in Akron, right, can start to think about these things and how they can leverage the technology that's out there effectively, how they can gain those insights, uh, how they can better leverage their own eternal human capital, but even when we talk about human capital, how they speak to their market and their customer base and, and uh, this notion of co-opetition, which of course speaks to the strategy that they employ and how they're thinking about these things. So what's that term, co-opetition? Co-opetition. Uh, it's an old term. It goes back to, I think it first came up in like the late 80s, early 90s. And the idea that we don't have to think of everyone as being a competitor, even those in our own space, is there an opportunity to collaborate? You know, when I was at Time Inc., um, one of the things that uh, we instituted under the CEO, uh, Joe Rep, brilliant guy, uh, and he talked to me about, and I talked with him about, how do we take advantage of the fact that we have insights into our consumers and into the people we're advertising to and, and our, our clients that no one else really has. Well, and that's terrific. And let's take a look at that. But how much of a, uh, a, an additional bump do you get? How much greater insights do you get when you start to collaborate with different organizations, right? And I'm not talking about engaging in some sort of a uh, monopolistic conspiracy here and working with the other publishers. But when we got together with other publishers and we were saying, you know, here are some of the lessons we learned. Here are some things we learned about how people want to be spoken to and how they want to be messaged and some information that we brought from, uh, or I brought from uh, the different arenas I work in, whether that was national intelligence or even working with, uh, and I think we've discussed before, I led the social media strategy for the 2012 Obama campaign and using some of those same insights to be able to drive these insights, what we realized was we didn't have to be in competition and we also didn't have to be in co pure cooperation with them. It's this notion of sort of a co-opetition, right? Working together toward occasioning uh, a common outcome or a common goal. And you'll find even the small companies in town, you know, I actually, this is kind of a weird example, but I brought this notion up with, um, there's two pizza places. We're in New Jersey. And so there are two pizza places by us that compete for who's the best in the neighborhood. And I become friends with the owners of both of them. And the owners of both of them have exactly the same challenges, right? They have their cost of 
cheese and sauce and all of these things and advertising and marketing. Well, yes, they're competing with one another and they both want to be the best and they both want me to buy my pizza from them. But how does it harm either one of them to combine forces to bulk purchase cheese or sauce or anything else? They're within a mile of one another. Uh, and so they have some now buyer power potentially by coming together. And that's what they've done, right? And uh, in fact, last I heard, they've expanded this consortium to where now they have uh, something like eight or nine pizza places in the area have all gotten together and they've talked to the guy who sells them the condiments and sells them these things and said, hey, you know what? Instead of ordering, you know, 50 of these, what are 500? And you bring that to my store and what does the guy care? And the other guy, uh, we'll order 500 or something else mm. and they'll divide it up among themselves and they all, all boats tend to rise. Mm. Well, you're adding to the profit margin for everybody. So they have, you know, increased likelihood to be able to succeed regardless of the competition. So, and frankly, even the supplier is happier, right? Yeah. Because now he doesn't have to contend with 10 different entities and he doesn't to do 10 deals and deliver to 10 locations it just delivers to one. That's the notion of Costco, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So what you're describing is very synergistic, but I would, I would think that that kind of thinking runs counter to what's been taught in, you know, business schools over the last 10, 20 years. Well, it depends on who's teaching, right? <laughs> I used sure. to, I taught uh, in the MBA program for years and, uh, my signature course was a capstone course I taught that was titled Leadership in Times of Crisis, Chaos, and Change. But I taught two other courses, uh, one in strategy and one in organizational transformation. And I used to make the point in any one of the three classes that really it was just a different lens on the same issue. And I think increasingly, well, I'm seeing increasingly, people are realizing that when you're talking about strategy in particular, Porter's five forces and Michael Porter is a brilliant guy, uh, but is that really as applicable when you're talking about, you know, uh, uh, a mid-tier manufacturer in Des Moines? Probably not. Uh, do you really have to have those same, you know, quote-unquote MBA level considerations? And so I used to teach from a perspective of uh, the equivalent of real politic, we used to teach real business or real uh, economic, mm. right? Let's focus. Uh, one of the things that's always bugged me is every kid who gets an MBA probably had to take that dreaded course in one in microeconomics, one in macroeconomics. Nobody teaches mesoeconomics. And I think that's an important topic. Yeah. And so that's something that I used to focus on with them. Yeah, I mean, uh, the whole idea of really entrepreneurship, I think, has gone, you know, un untaught for a long time. I mean, honestly, I I feel like I've always been self-employed. Um, you're kind of in the same same situation, but I mean, I learned it from my father, who started a painting business in 1979. You know, it was the uh, the terrible 70s, and yeah. You know, that's what he had to do to try to, to make it work. But, you know, I learned the value of, by watching him, of, of how he did things. 
it just doesn't seem like we have that same drive towards our entrepreneurship now. Well, I think it's, it's worse than that. Uh, I think we denigrate it to some extent. Uh, to that point, uh, I, had, I have two kids who are grown now. I have grandchildren who are nearly in high school, but my, my kids were in high school. Uh, they would spend, uh, I'll never forget, they both had the same teacher for American history. And, one of, and this guy was for some reason fixated on the Brooklyn Bridge, which is interesting and it's fine. Uh, but the, both of them had to do a major project, a paper and a diorama and all this nonsense on the Brooklyn Bridge. And again, I, I don't mean to denigrate you know, the importance of, of small history, because I think I like the idea of small history. But each of them, we used to joke about the fact that they spent literally two weeks on that. And both of them came out of high school without knowing how to balance a checkbook hmm. or buy a stock, let alone any insight at all into how they might start a business. Yeah. And what we find now is people come out of a bachelor's degree, sometimes even an MBA, without really understanding how to be entrepreneurial. And, and the final point I'll make to that is, I think you would agree that entrepreneurialism isn't necessarily just about going out and opening up a, a, a store or opening up a, you know, a manufacturing outfit. Uh, entrepreneurship and that mindset, that perspective tends to be a very valuable lens and a way of looking at how you are going to allocate resources, which really is what entrepreneurship is and entrepreneurialism is all about. It is the strategic allocation of resources, right? And so even if you are a mid-tier executive in an organization, one of the challenges I used to have at, at Samsung and most particularly at Time Inc., I was a, a, a C-level executive and we have all these folks who are below who figure, well, they don't really have to understand uh, a balance sheet and financials and heaven forbid, understand cash flow or a quarterly statement. Most of the people who work for me, unfortunately, couldn't tell a P and L from a PB and J. And I think that's a challenge. I think we, we have to have some more financial acumen, uh, not just for our personal lives, but to advance ourselves professionally. No, no, no doubt. I, I, you know, to me, entrepreneurship um, is uh, super powerful in terms of being kind of self-affirming and uh, empowering. And in terms of being able to be creative with something that you're good at, but to be able to, to, to share it with people in a way that you get rewarded for that and you get rewarded for what you love to do, you know? And that's exactly right. And, and you then know, you're happier. Uh, well, and not only happier, uh, that extends, doesn't it? I, f yeah. I have lost track of the statistics, but back when I was teaching, uh, something like 94% of all new jobs in the United States were created by small businesses, small companies. And we've come to this point where we assume that bigger is better, and it's just not so. Uh, people don't have those opportunities, the, and the work itself tends to be stultifying, and it doesn't tend to really advance our collective agenda. And more and more, I've been talking about this perspective. I, I wrote a column for a little while for NACD, for the National Association of Corporate Directors. 
And I would talk about the fact that I think one of the greatest challenges we have right now in corporate America comes down to the two letters, uh, believe it or not. And, and I'm dead serious. Uh, the, currently, the focus of every board member must be to maximize shareholder value. That's it. That's what you're obligated to do. Your job as a board member, and one could argue the job of the entity of the organization, is to maximize shareholder revenue mm -hmm. or, or, or shareholder benefit, right? I think we need to change our focus from shareholder to stakeholder. Yeah. As yeah. simple as that. And that yeah. stakeholder can be multiple constituencies. It may well be the shareholder. Yeah. I, I don't think that's insignificant. Look, I, I like the idea that people are working to increase the return in my portfolio. Uh, but I like the idea even better, particularly in a post-COVID economy, that they're not so fixedly focused, so myopically, on we just have to drive the the quarterlies, yeah. right? And that's what gets us into the challenge we're in right now in a post-COVID economy, are those companies that are still thinking to themselves, I don't have to care about the public I serve, the community I'm in, the people who work for me. I don't have to care about that. And I'm not talking about from a sense of altruism. I'm talking for self-interest. It's that, that myopic mindset that we're seeing getting more and more companies into trouble. Mm -hmm. And in particular with their employees, if the relationship is transactional and that's all it is, well then guess what? When you hit on hard times, <laughs> they're on to the next transaction as they should be. Exactly. You know, um, one of the things, um, have you ever heard of uh, Robert Heilbrunner? You know, it sounds familiar. You'll have to refresh. He was, uh, he was a professor, uh, one of the New York universities, uh, New York City, but uh, he wrote a book called Limits of American Capitalism in the uh, 1960s. And he looked at um, the point being that what you're describing with shareholder capitalism came about with Milton Friedman and what happened in the mm -hmm. 70s and really with Reagan and the changes that happened in the 80s really accelerated to what we see today. But the, the truth is it hasn't always been like that. You know, before, before Milton Friedman, we actually had stakeholder capitalism. And those were some of the limits that were placed on it that actually created the boom that we had, you know, after the depression and into the 70s. And, you know, in terms of both the wealth building that took place with the uh, middle class and the growth in terms of the American industrial, you know, might that we, you know, we, we are today, or at least we were, you know, uh, you know, given the current situation, but. Well, you've just uh, found the number one read on my read list. I'm, <laughs> I, it's just skyrocketing. It's a short book. It's a small book, but it like it, it's just really good insight to look at things through the lens of a different age and say, hey, if labor, if um, researchers, if government, if business management and um, your military leaders, if all five of these groups actually work together in a cooperative fashion, you end up with a much bigger pie. And that's the right. reality. Well, yeah, well, you've also touched on my intellectual arch enemy, at least economically, has long been Milton Friedman. I think his 
his thinking is is very dated, very short-sighted, and there's a constant. I think it's a consequence of adhering to that uh, Friedman perspective that has doomed us in many ways. It's it's very reminiscent of I think if there's anyone who was worse, it was uh, Ayn Rand and this notion of objectivism, this notion of ra- quote unquote rational self-interest. Uh, negates, uh, ignores the fact entirely that we are a social being, exactly. that we are a spo- social animal. But um, uh, yeah, I, I'm a big fan of, uh, I love the work of Robert Reich and talking about a lot of this exactly. alternative perspective. But that said, uh, I think even from that lens, even from looking at, at, at some of what, you know, uh, uh, this American exceptionalism, uh, this this notion of an elitism, uh, this notion of cutthroat capitalism, as opposed to some degree of, and I'm not even advocating necessarily for compassionate capitalism, as much as for coherence, as much as for thinking about it. That's why we are in the wake of this COVID-19 crisis, experiencing this K-shaped recovery, right? Because, and that, uh, Medically, I'm terrified about this uh, pandemic. My wife is, I don't know if I've ever shared with you, my wife has been an ICU nurse for 40 years. Uh, wow, this this she's July. On the front yeah. yeah, and exactly. And uh, she's just getting, well, she was planning to retire finally just before all this hit, but can't. And so I'm getting, you know, reports back from literally from the front line almost every day. Uh, certainly every day she works. But as much as I'm concerned about the medical implications, uh, we haven't even seen the first ripples of what this is going to do economically. And some of the way out of that will be, well, the entire path out of that will be, as I said, strategy, human capital, insights, technology, which uh, if you haven't caught it by now, (laughs) just a handy reminder, you have to know your Let's see what letters did that start with? Strategy, human capital, insight, technology. <laughs> there we go. Ah, there we go. Choker Jeez, day. Did you get the, uh, there we go. I was trying to put them together. I'm like, S H I got it. There we go. S H I know where you go. Know your, this. Know That's right. That's right. But that is technology, really that becomes the catalyst, that becomes the means, the mechanism. You know, I, I increasingly run through my mind and I'm thinking about this in terms of David and Goliath, right? Um, you know, how was David able to feat the Goliathan forces, pardon the pun, allied against him, was, a, was technology, was a slingshot, which at the time was pretty cool technology, but we forget that, um, it takes some real skills and capabilities. You know, if I uh, handed you a slingshot, well, assuming you haven't used one before, uh, we actually did. When I was in Special Forces, one of our, I, I became uh, a weapons expert also. I became uh, an armorer. And so I've been trained on every small weapon in the military arsenal. And so the guy who trained us and taught us, uh, he brought out you know, one of these biblical slingshots, not, not like the one you see with a little, you know, piece of wood or something with a rubber band, but two, two strings with a little leather between them made out of hemp or, you know, any rope. He used paracord 
and how to swing these things. Well, this guy was amazing. He could hit uh, a target the size of a silver dollar at 200 feet. Wow. Excuse me, excuse me, 200 yards. I'm sorry, 200 yards, he wow. could hit a target. Twi That's two crazy. lengths of a football field. Well, why is that important? It's important because, and why is it relevant to the conversation? There's become this unfortunate mindset that AI and all this cool technology is like buying a dishwasher or a microwave. You get it home, you plug it in, and you're good to go. That is not the case. Yeah. Yeah. What I've been focusing on for years now are building what I refer to as symbiotech systems, right? You get that symbiotic. Yeah. Symbi and symbiotech systems, thinking about, um, you know, the, for some reason, my peers, the press, professional organizations have labeled me the world's leading thinker in applied artificial intelligence. And I keep telling people, I don't really do AI. I do IA. I do intelligence augmentation. I see AI as almost a cognitive prosthetic, as being able to advance our agenda, utilizing this technology. And how is that relevant in a time of COVID? Uh, I'm reminded JP Morgan implemented a system that they called COIN about two years ago. And the COIN is an acronym. It stands for Contract Investigation. And before they had this live, they had cadres, these, these groups of lawyers and loan officers who would review documents. And it's meticulous, grinding work. Well, when they hit go on the COIN system, within three minutes, it was able to do with a higher degree of accuracy work that had taken those lawyers and loan officers 360,000 hours. Hmm. Now, think about how you get to now repurpose some of that labor, some of that human capital into doing the things that machines can't do and augmenting those capabilities. Uh, the, I'm reminded I wrote a, an article a, a couple of years ago now. It was actually an homage to my wife. And the title of the article was, Robots Will Never Take This Job. And I was making the point that my wife is an ICU nurse. And about, and I'm just guessing here, maybe 80, 85, maybe even 90% of what she does eventually will be able to be replaced by technology, by the robots. But there is an aspect of what she does that will never be replaced, no. right? That humanity, compassion, yeah. empathy, even perspective, wisdom, sagacity, whatever you call it, those elements. And so a lot of us are thinking the robots can replace our job we need to stop thinking that way. We need to say the robots are going to replace an aspect of our job. And so how do we work integratively with them and create this human technological system, if you will, that's able to be more effective? The final point I'll make on that, you know, I was mentioning David and Goliath. Uh, I mentioned I was also team leader of a scout sniper recon team with the special forces. Um, it was the same lesson they taught us in sniper training, sniper school. Uh, they refer to a sniper weapon system, and a sniper weapon system consists of two parts. It's the actual material equipment. It's the rifle and the scope and the, the ammunition. And the other part of the system is the human. Uh, if I just handed you a rifle, I don't know if you could do the same thing that I've been trained to be able to do. I can put five rounds into a silver dollar at a mile. Uh, I also know that I couldn't do what I do 
if I was trying to shoot a BB gun, right? And so it is that integration of people and technology. And I think COVID has become a catalyst for us realizing that, realizing that we can augment our workforce and move from, you know, Alfred Sloan's initial conception of the organization as emulating or mimicking the military structure to the new military structure, which is more of a special forces model, where instead of having, you know, a battalion of soldiers, you have six highly trained soldiers who work perfectly synchronously with the equipment they're given. And that equipment has the same potential impact as what all those soldiers had before. If not more so, you know, my yeah. colonel used to have to make a decision if he would send in 300 uh, soldiers, a company, or if he would send me and my five buddies. And it isn't that we had an S on our chest, right? It isn't that we were, I mean, we like to believe that we were better than everyone else, but we weren't. We were trained to work together and to work with our equipment. Mm -hmm. and to be that much more effective. And as a consequence, we could be more effective in some circumstances than if you sent in those 300 troops. And it's no small coincidence. You keep hearing around the world of special forces troops being deployed. You don't hear about you know, lots and lots of troops being deployed. It's not just, I mean, the Pentagon is rarely concerned with trying to save a buck. That's not why they're doing it. They're doing it because it's the better, smarter strategy. Gotcha. What, um, so your, your new company is Protect with AI. Protected uh, by AI. Protected yep. by AI. So when you said that and when you, when you gave your background, what immediately popped into my mind was a conversation we had earlier in terms of the challenges um, that America faces from China. And... Mm -hmm you know, how, and, and through the whole conversation we just had of being able to be creative enough to use the AI, like where does that stand now in terms of China's ability to kind of use AI on a, like what is, what is the difference between the US and China in terms of AI at this point? Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, an ongoing question. And uh, I actually got into a, a very, very friendly argument, conversation, discussion with Kai-Fu Lee uh, a couple of years ago now. And Kai-Fu Lee, anyone who does, hasn't read his book, AI Superpowers, you really need to. It, uh, he's a brilliant guy. And the book will, I will tell you, scare the hell out of you when you read it, and particularly the first few chapters. And in it, he makes a case, and a pretty compelling case, that uh, China is pulling into the lead in the development of AI. And that can be concerning if for no other reason. Vladimir Putin made a statement just a couple of years ago. He was actually addressing the school children all across Russia. So this is, you know, a warm and fuzzy speech. And in the speech, he talks about the importance of artificial intelligence, and he ends the speech by saying, whoever becomes the leader in this arena will become the ruler of the world. And I don't know if he meant militarily or economically, but he's right, and probably in either case. But the real concern, the more pressing concern, is economically. And in that regard, we should be very concerned with what's going on in China versus what's going on in the US. Uh, most 
industrialized nations, in fact, most nations are making investments in artificial intelligence that pale uh, by comparison to what we're doing here in the US, that we're investing you know, pennies when they're investing millions and in some cases billions. Canada is outspending us by an order of magnitude. Uh, don't even get me started on everyone from China and Russia, France, the UK, the Nordic countries, uh, basic Israel, most of the world are making these investments and we settle back with, eh, we're Americans, we're smart, and we'll figure it out. Eh, you know what? Not so much. We need to get in the race. And the way to do that, not to make our conversation circular, but is to empower entrepreneurial entities to be able to do some of this, right? To be able to do yeah. what we did with the space race, to be able to do what we did post-World War II with uh, the GI Bill and with some of these uh, uh, programs to be able to infuse cash into the, the uh, in entrepreneurial community, into small companies that will innovate because otherwise, what do we have? We have, you know, the tech giants, which all due respect to Google and Netflix and, and Amazon and Apple, it's ludicrous to think of them as American entities anymore. They're of course not. They are entities unto themselves. And that isn't where the innovation is going to come from. That said, the argument I got into with Kai-Fu Lee, his contention being that China will pull too, so far in the head, uh, I think in some ways is short-sighted because every, comp every country is making significant strides and this is not nationalistically determined, right? I know kids who are literally kids, 16, 17, 18 years old, I've spent quite a bit of time with them in India uh, who are brilliant and who are going to be pushing the envelope forward. I've worked with kids in South America, in gosh, all over the world. And a consequence of sort of the democratization of education with the rise of the MOOCs, the massive online open collaborative platforms for education that most universities have, with access to data, to resources, things like GitHub, just for sharing code and data and algorithms, um, we're seeing increasingly that national borders are becoming increasingly irrelevant. And as a consequence, while uh, China may create eventually more tech millionaires than we do, though I somehow doubt it, uh, if they do, who cares? Uh, you have to ask yourself, is that per capita? Because if that's the case, they got to create a whole lot more millionaires. Uh, and is that really the, the ultimate metric of success? If we're all benefiting from the evolution of this technology, you know, Andrew Eng, a uh, friend of mine, uh, I think he's still on the faculty at Stanford, but um, been very involved with a number of Chinese ventures. One could never call Andrew a shill for the Chinese government. Uh, he is just an advocate for technology, for AI. And I'm willing to bet if anyone on this line is interested in machine learning, they've probably taken his free online course from Stanford. Uh, and if you haven't, you should. It's a great course. Uh, he did another one, and I think, well, he did one in deep learning, he did a couple of courses. But my point is, you can get those from anywhere. Um, one of the things we're doing in my company and protected by AI, we have, uh, uh, we're doing quite a bit of work in South Africa right now. And we're working with the South African government on issues pertaining to 
combating fraud, corruption, waste, and abuse, and ensuring the equitable distribution of services to the people of South Africa. So we're fighting the good fight. And so what I wanted to do, and we did, was right from the beginning, we created a program we called Diamonds in Africa. And the Diamonds in Africa program is about finding kids who didn't, would never otherwise have opportunity, mm. the kids who were living in, you know, the shanty towns, and tell them, you don't need a, a PhD from an Ivy League U.S. institution to learn this stuff. And so let's teach them and give them the skills, our intent to be that we can create capabilities in Africa for Africans done by Africans uh, and create opportunities for people in not just South Africa, but across the African continent. And the reason I bring up the point is, is that if I'm doing that and my company is running that, is that an American effort or is that South African or is it international? Mm-hmm. And I would say um, it, it transcends borders. And increasingly, I'm uh, coming to find I'm not the only one who's thinking that way. You know, in, in the wake of this last election uh, and all the pain and horrors that we've endured over the last four years, and you know my politics, and I'm not shy about them, uh, we have seen this very regrettable rise, not just in the U.S., but internationally of nationalism. Mm -hmm. And I'm constantly reminding people that nationalism is not the same as patriotism. I'm very patriotic. I believe in this in the United States, Uh, but I'm not a nationalist. And a nationalist being someone who thinks because you're in or from the United States, you're somehow better than others. Uh, I'm a humanist. And I think more and more we're seeing people rising to that uh, as their perspective. Mm-hmm. You you see more and more people rising to a nationalist perspective. Well, I think both. I think both. you're seeing, yeah. I, I well, I, take a look at the post-election, right? When you look at the people celebrating in the streets, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, those are they, they're not people who, by no means, would consider themselves nationalists. Yeah. And I think even more than they define themselves as patriots, and I and I think they do, and I and I think they are, but they're also humanists. When you look at that collection that cacophony of humanity Mm -hmm. that comes together. You know, I was, um, I attended the last March on Washington. Uh, I was, even I was a little too young for the first March on Washington, but I just uh, attended this one. And the the breadth of humanity that was there uh, was shocking. It was wonderful. It was from the very young to the very old. It was black and white and Hispanic and Asian. It was gay and straight. It was everyone coming together for common cause. And I think we're increasingly going to see that also economically. I think people are starting to realize, you know, the point you made earlier, that we haven't seen real income rise in this country since the 1970s. Uh, The fact that opportunity is continuously being denied people, that now there's a path through technology, through learning these things. And that's why when I talk about strategy, human capital, insights, and technology, these are insuperable things to me. Mm-hmm. When we're talking about something like human capital and evolving human capital, I'm reminded, you know, Gary Becker uh, won the Nobel Prize for proving unequivocally that the single best investment any nation can make is its people. And I think the people 
are starting to realize that more and starting to demand it more. And we're going to see more and more of that, particularly as AI and these technologies displace people economically. They're going to say, now, wait a minute. I don't have to be the person on the sideline. I may not have to learn how to code. And I'm not saying everyone has to, although, frankly, I think everyone should. I think as important as reading and writing were to our parents' generation, learning to code is truly going to be at least as important to our children. Uh, and I think it's, it's well, I can teach you to code in five minutes. It's not all that damn tough. But I think we're going to see people who say, I'm not okay with whatever it is, 1%, 5%, 10%, whatever you want to argue, one-tenth of 1%, having all the wealth and us having to settle for crumbs. Yeah. Um, I, th I think we talked about this when we did our piece on education, but I mean, I, th I think a big a big factor of where we need to look at is really more of an emphasis in terms of liber liberal arts education, you know, looking at how things connect and interconnect to be more creative. I mean, would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, I so absolutely agree. One of the reasons I left the academy, one of the reasons I'm not still a professor is I think, and I guess I should say this more tactfully, but I won't. Um, I think most universities have digressed into becoming glorified trade schools. Yeah, yeah. You go no, there to learn whatever it is, your subject, and nothing more. University is supposed to be about teaching you to think. It's yeah. supposed to be about expanding your mind. Yeah. When I used to, when I did teach, even on the courses in the, whether it was in the MBA program or the psych program or mathematics, um, I insisted on a philosophic perspective as well. Mm. You know, people like to think that it's philosophy and, you know, airy fairy and stuff there and who cares about it. I got to tell you, you know, I, I feel like we're increasingly seeing a nation of peoples who have never really learned how to think yep. and think I effectively. Agree. I don't mean to offend problem. people, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that's we assume you just problem. are born with it, right? I agree with you. You know, it just critical thinking to be able to think logically, rationally, to parse a problem, um, and that's. By the way, I used to tell my MBA students the real value in an MBA is not that I'm going to teach you how to read a balance sheet, or that I'm going to, well, I'm not, or that I'm going to teach you, you know, this subject matter or that subject matter particularly but we're gonna give you a new lens that you can use to view life. It's the same reason a legal education would be valuable or education in mathematics. And you know, I agree with you. I think the most valuable of all is a liberal education uh, by definition, right? Uh, it's one of the fights I'm always having is when I get accused of being a liberal. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> uh, and by the way, anyone who's listening, look up the words. Don't let me influence you. Look up the words liberal, and conservative in the dictionary, any dictionary you like. Mm -hmm. And effectively, what they will tell you is liberal is a person who's willing to change their minds and consider alternative perspectives and evolve their thinking. Conservative is the antithesis of that. Conservative is, that's it. You lock in and there's only one way of thinking about it. You're a traditionalist and you don't want to change your mind and evolve. Well, who wants to do that? Well, the, uh, challenge, the challenge is yeah. when we live in a world that we live in, which is undergoing fundamental profound change. If you're stuck in, you know, 1970s thinking, 
you know, you're going to get left behind. And that's the economic and financial reality. And but that brings us back to the beginning of our conversation. I think that's where we are now economically as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think most companies have become apathetic to some extent. And uh, look, I've, I work with some great companies and it's kind of hard not to. You have this complacency that creeps in. Uh, a quick anecdote about that. My um, business partner, who I founded this firm with, Brian Gallagher, that's the guy I mentioned who's former Secret Service. Uh, and he started out as a paramedic also. And he also, uh, I was a competitive martial artist for years, so was he. And I bring it up because we were both really physical guys. Well, he, this past August, he goes on vacation with his family. And uh, he, just to the little, you know, it's COVID. So they go to the, the little summer place not far from his home where they can swim in the lake. And he's swimming and he's splashing with the kids. And he comes out of the lake and his wife says, wow, you've gotten flabby and fat which, wow, thanks, honey. And uh, so it kind of hurts his feelings. And I'm his best friend, so he tells me about this. But the reason he tells me is they get home, and literally the day they get home, he gets a phone call. Hi, this is, I forget the guy's name, Mark, Rick, whatever. This is Mark. Hi, Mark. Uh, can I help you? He says, well, actually, I can help you because your wife has just hired me. I'm your new personal trainer <laughs> three days a week starting this week. And he tells me this and I'm laughing and I get off the phone and my wife says, what are you laughing about? And I tell her the story and she says, you know, <laughs> you have a new trainer. <laughs> well, and so what did we do? Brian and I made a bet and we bet a hundred bucks. You know, we had to put some money behind it. I, yeah. I, I proposed a thousand. He said, don't be ridiculous, but we've got a hundred bucks and we're having this year, what we're calling the founders fat off. And in one year, we're now, we just hit three months into it. Uh, it started on August 11th, November 11th was our three months that we're into it. And we are competing and we're serious, right? I've lost 26 pounds. He's lost a ton of weight. We're getting really in shape. We're killing ourselves because we're really competitive guys. And the way we're going to know if we win is in a year, we both have to appear in board shorts and shirtless in front of our wives. And if there's a tie, which they're mean, so there probably will be, we got to post those pictures in social media. <laughs> and so, What's the moral to the story? The moral to the story is we got complacent. Right, we started just get comfortable in our lives mm -hmm. and not taking this seriously. And how many companies do exactly that? Yeah. How many of them start to make it, start to enjoy some success, start to get comfortable in where they are, then COVID, then an economic downturn, then insert here, whatever happens, and they gotta look to themselves and say, oh dear, and that, that is exactly why COVID can be a catalyst for positive change. That is why what we do is we work with them and say, now, hang on, take a look and how are you using your strategy, your human capital? What kind of insights do you have to know whether or not you're losing those pounds, right? And if you were on the right track and how much you're lifting or running or whatever you're doing, and you have the right technology, you have the right equipment, to be able to get you to your goals. Same thing.
we realized we had to figure out our own as strategy, <laughs> human capital, insights, technology, no our stuff. Yeah. No doubt, no doubt. Um, we, I know we could just talk forever, and I appreciate <laughs> you taking you're taking the time and uh, and catching up. Um, if people want to reach out to you about um, the new work that you're doing, um, how can they reach out to you? Yeah, uh, it's always easier to find me. The website is, interestingly enough, protected by dot AI, protected by AI. And you can find me on LinkedIn, JT Costman, Dr. JT Costman. I uh, am intermittently very active on LinkedIn. Feel free to connect me, with me there. And if you like, just uh, email me directly. Mm -hmm. I am my name, JT Costman, at protectedby.ai. And I'm always, and by the way, uh, open, and you know me well enough to know, absolutely genuine offer. I'm probably the only doctor left who still makes house calls. <laughs> and I know I'm the only one who makes them for free. Even in COVID, uh, if you're hurting, if your organization is hurting, if your company is hurting, if you are responsible for making sure other people can pay the bills and stay employed and keep that company in business and you need help, don't think about, I have no meter on my desk. There's no you know, clock that starts running. If I can help you, drop me a note, drop me a line. We'll come up with a time when we can chat and I'll do what I can to help you. Awesome. Well, again, thanks for taking the time to chat. And uh, I know uh, we'll get to 2021 and uh, we'll, we'll have some more conversations. But uh, thanks again for sharing and uh, sharing so much of, you know, your insights and your background. Always a pleasure. Uh, your uh, shameless promotion here, uh, truly uh, among my favorite podcast hosts to speak to. I enjoy every one of our conversations. I'll be happy to come back anytime. Awesome. Thanks so much. I'll talk to you soon, JT. Thank Take you. Take care, my friend. Bye-bye.